morning. How are we this morning? You guys excited to be in the house of the Lord on Easter? It's a fun day to celebrate uh, what God has done, what Jesus has done on the cross. And so I'm glad that you've chosen to celebrate Easter with us today. My name is Pastor Jake. I'm the lead pastor here at Great Oaks. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can head over to John chapter 14 and 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. We'll get there eventually. If you're new, uh, if this is your first time here, or maybe, uh, you know, you just haven't been in a while, maybe since last Easter or since Christmas or something like that, I want you to hear me invite you back. We would love for you to come back next Sunday with your family same time. Uh, it's a great time right now to get involved at Great Oaks uh, because God is doing amazing things here. Uh, our church is growing and God is doing some great things. So please get involved. Get your kids involved with what we do on Sunday mornings. Get your middle school students and your high school students involved uh, with what we do during the week. They'll love it. And today we're going to start a series of messages called uh, Redacted. And uh, so it's going to be six weeks long, going to be through the end of May. And so I would love it if you would make it a priority to be here as much as you can during those six weeks. Even if you're new, that's a good time, a good way, I should say, uh, to, to try out a church, to actually come multiple weeks in a row. Some of you have never been to church six weeks in a row. It could be a huge thing for your life, all right? That was kind of a mocking sarcasm, just a little bit there, all right? But, but you've not, you're already one for one. Good job. You're already one for one. And so maybe you come during this season. It's a great way to try a church out to see if God would have you uh, make your family a part of our family uh, here at at Great Oaks. So we're going to start this series called Redacted today. Let me uh, just set the stage for it uh, in this way. Think about about your favorite spy movie or uh, conspiracy thriller. Uh, in those type of movies, there, there, there's inevitably a truth seeker, right? Somebody who's trying to prove something, somebody who's trying to find some kind of truth out. And there's also usually some kind of government agent, a, a CIA agent or an FBI agent. They are usually pretty nervous. Uh, they they, they you know, are, don't want to rock the boat, but they have some good in them, so they kind of want to help out, and, and there's a back and forth there. Those agents, they, they say it's things like, you know, you don't know how big this is, right? You don't know how high this is goes like you need to be careful your family's in danger this is this is goes all the way to the top so they're nervous and they're jumpy but they end up usually in those movies uh, deciding or agreeing to meet with that truth seeker to pass on a piece of evidence right a piece of proof that will help them Uh, those meetings generally take place um, on a park bench right Um, so they take place on a park bench Uh, they sit next to each other and act like they don't know each other And then there may be like an exchange of some kind of code word or phrase like the eagle has landed or something like that. And so then they they pass off, this this agent passes off this this piece of evidence and it's a document or something uh, to that effect. It's in a manila envelope or a manila folder, I should say, uh, or a briefcase. And they'll, they'll usually say, you know, it was really hard to get this, you know, or I could get in big trouble or this is all I could get or phrase like that. And, and so as soon as they hand that off, the agent in these movies generally just gets up off the park bench and just leaves, right? He just, he bails. He doesn't want to be there any longer than he has to. He doesn't want to get found out. And if you've watched these spy movies, you know that that character, the character of the agent, they're not long for this world, right? 
Like they're going to die soon. It's going to be some kind of mysterious heart attack or a car accident or, you know, a, a freak boating thing. But they're not long for this world. And when they walk away, usually the truth true seeker is like, wait, wait, I got questions. But they just, they just leave. And then they're left with this little envelope uh, with this, this file in it, this document. And so they open it and they start, they start kind of reading it. And this is it. This is the proof that, that they need in order to make their case. And as they start reading it, they find that much of, the, much of the document has these big, thick, black lines covering up the text. Like some of the most important parts have these black lines covering the text because this document that they fought so hard to get has been what? Yeah, I thought that on the screen might help you. I mean, I thought, I thought you guys could do this. I mean, did you guys bring your A game on Easter Sunday? Because I brought my A game. I'm hoping you guys brought your A game, all right? So that document has been what? It's been redacted. That means that somebody, after it was written, somebody came in and they took things out or covered things up that they didn't want other people, other people to see. It's been redacted. If you watch the news um, or, you know, you've been listening to the news, uh, you've heard of the Mueller report, right? So the Mueller report, everybody, over the last few weeks, let's get the Mueller report. We want to see the Mueller report. We want to see what's inside of it. Let's see what's inside of it. Well, they re- just released a couple of days ago a, a, a version of the Mueller report, but it was a what? redacted version, meaning that somebody came into the Mueller report and covered over or took out anything they deemed too sensitive or too classified for public consumption. Redacted. Now, there's something in the formal study of the Bible and theology called redaction criticism. It's a method in some camps where you read the biblical text in order to decide what should stay and what shouldn't, what is genuine and what should be redacted. And so anything that is unfitting, anything that is unrealistic, anything that is, even makes you uncomfortable, no problem, just grab the black marker, the Sharpie, and mark it out. Just redact it. It's actually pretty convenient, right? No need for your faith to be stretched or your values to be challenged. Just grab the black marker. Jesus too direct for you, redacted. The Bible talking about living your life in a different way than you're living it now, redacted. The Bible talks about sin, or calls something sin that the, that the world calls genetics, redacted. You don't like the idea of a loving God sending sinners to hell, no problem. Take a black marker to it, redacted. It's pretty convenient, actually, redaction criticism. Thomas Jefferson was actually famous for this, but he didn't use a marker. He used a knife. And so he actually took a knife to the Bible and carved out the pieces of the Bible, the parts of the Bible that he uh, thought were not genuine, were unrealistic, couldn't possibly be true. It's a real thing. It's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. You can check it out another time. I don't recommend it. But... So the redaction criticism, it's, it's pretty convenient, but none, none of us are doing this, right? I mean, none of you are actually taking it. We're not taking a black marker to the Bible, are we? And we're, we're definitely not grabbing a knife and carving out pieces of the Bible. We're not ripping pages out. We, you wouldn't read the Bible and then say, you know, I don't like what I just read, so I'm just going to take it out. Like, you wouldn't do that. But the truth is that, that redaction criticism is alive and well in our 
society, inside and outside the church, we are so guilty of it. Picking and choosing verses that fit our worldview and tossing everything else that doesn't. Reading the Bible and then backing away from it thinking what was true in what I read and what was false. Rather than allowing the Bible to tell us what is true and what is false. Reading the Bible through the lens of our experiences rather than understanding our experiences through the lens of the Bible. We are so guilty of this. While the Bible you hold in your hands may not be the redacted version, my concern is that the one in your heart is. The one that you actually believe, the one that you actually live by has been redacted. You've taken things out of it that make you uncomfortable, things that would cause you to change, things that would cause you pain, things that would cost you, that would cost you friends, reputation, time, energy, luxury, even maybe money. You've redacted those things from the Bible in your heart. So over the next six weeks... What we're going to do is we're going to take on six different biblical ideas, things that show up in the Bible that we tend to redact or ignore in the Bible in our hearts. Or maybe we change um, uh, the, the Bible, what the Bible says to match our beliefs rather than changing our beliefs to match what the Bible says. And so we're going to talk about six different things over the next six weeks. Because here's the thing. The Bible is an all or nothing kind of deal. You either accept all of it as truth or you accept none of it as truth. Because 2 Timothy 3 in verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture. So what I'm saying is that a redacted version of God's word is no longer God's word. A redacted version of God's word is no longer God's word. And so this is is kind of a big deal, isn't it? this 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 is kind of a big deal. Let me spend the rest of our time together. I'm talking about um, the first of six. The first of six ideas that we tend to redact or ignore in the Bible in our hearts. If you have your Bible in your hands, you can head over to John chapter 14. Uh, Before I read the first six verses in that chapter, let me set it up this way. Today is Easter, as Pastor Jesse and Pastor Nate both already said. uh, Easter is the day that we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection uh, on the third day. And so Jesus left heaven, entered human history. God became man. He, He took our punishment for our sin. We couldn't pay it. We couldn't pay the price. We couldn't meet the standard. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. And he did it anyways. He died in excruciating pain on the cross. But not only that, on Easter we celebrate the fact that he rose again, that the tomb is empty. Aren't you glad the tomb is empty? Yeah, Jesus' followers should be super pumped about the tomb being empty. Everybody else is like, eh, whatever. You see what I did just there? This is good. A little bit of a little bit of stand. I'm kidding with you. You didn't know I was going to get you to respond. Why would you respond in church, right? You have to be quiet like a church mouse. So stay that way the rest of the sermon. But 
Easter is when we, Easter is when we um, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection has been called by others the, the hinge of history. Because everything before it points forward to it, and everything after it finds its foundation there. The resurrection is the hinge of history. That's what we celebrate today on Easter. But in John chapter 14, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. It's his last night with his followers, with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. And so he's got, he knows what's going to happen. He knows what they're about to go through. And so he's got some things he wants to say to his disciples. He wants to impart some last words, some last bits of wisdom. So, so what's he going to say? And what would you say? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you say today to your kids? What, what piece of wisdom would you pass on to those that you love? What direction would you give them? What would you want them to remember as your last words? Jesus has some last words for his disciples. And in John 14, he's going to encourage them by saying he's made a place for them. He's made a way for them to, to be with him later. Look at it with me in John 14, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So far, so good, right? Jesus is encouraging us, encouraging his disciples. I've prepared a place for you. It's going to be great. There's lots of rooms, so, so nobody's going to be left out, right? It's going to be great. And you know the way. You know the way. And so he says this, and, and most of his disciples, they, they kind of go, yeah, okay, this makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that, this makes sense. But there's this one disciple who's kind of, I picture him kind of at the back of the class, kind of raising his hand and going like, ah, I got a question. <laughs> Everybody seems fine with this, but I have a question. His name is Thomas, right? You guys are Thomas and me. Because we got, ah, I don't fully understand, right? He raises his hand and he asks a question. And let's look at Thomas's question, verse 5 of John 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's a great question, isn't it? We don't know where this place is. So why are you saying we know how to get there? Thomas Because I don't fully understand. Try to, try to not listen to this or read this through 2,000 years of, of, church, of church history and, and a lifetime of church experience. If you're Thomas, you're like, where's the house at? Right? You're like, it's got a lot of rooms. I've never, I've never seen a house like that. Like, is it in Galilee? Is it in Jerusalem? You're preparing a place like, where is the house? We don't know where it is. Jesus, you just said we know how to get there. How can we get there if we don't know where it is? I mean, it's a, he's a logical dude, right? He's a logical dude. He's asking a great question. Now, Jesus' answer to Thomas's question has caused a lot of people a lot of heartache over a lot of years. Let's, let's look at his answer, Jesus' answer. Thomas says, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me read that again. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
what? <laughs> Could Jesus really mean that? I mean, does he really mean what it seems like he means in John 14, 6? I mean, how egotistical, right? How self-centered. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the one. I mean, how much more egotistical can you get? Really? Does Jesus really mean this? That he and only he is the one means by which earthbound men and women have any shot or any hope at reaching heaven? Could he really mean that? I mean, it seems kind of egotistical, doesn't it? Kind of narrow. Kind of narrow. What makes matters worse is that Jesus doesn't say this just once. He says it multiple times in multiple ways throughout his earthly ministry. One of the other times that he says something similar, he says the same thing but just in a different way, is in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. You guys get kind of antsy when I start going past 30 minutes, right? 35 minutes. Um, Sermon on the Mount was like all day. So you guys need to up your game to the listeners of Jesus, all right? I'll try to up my game to Jesus level speaking. And you guys, you guys up your game. Okay, so Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Same kind of thing, just says it in a different way. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it... Are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What? Do you just really mean this? I mean, he kind of, he goes, guys, guys, th th there's this wide way and this wide gate and this, this easy path. And that path leads to death. It leads to destruction. But there's this, there's this other way. It's narrow. The gate is narrow. The path is difficult. And that's the path that leads to life. And very few people are finding it. It's, it's few people getting there. It's very difficult. It's narrow. What? I mean, could Jesus really mean these things? It's awfully egotistical, isn't it? Uh, his disciples, the people who were listening to him, his disciples who would become his apostles, they surely thought he meant it. They thought he was being literal because later they said some of the same things in different ways. Like one example of that is Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, uh, Jesus has already risen from the dead. Uh, the, he's already ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 4, just before that, the church is established and it's going like crazy. Miracles are happening. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles John and Peter are walking by a lame beggar, somebody who couldn't walk, and they pray for him in the name of Jesus and he's miraculously healed. And they're preaching the gospel everywhere and, and the Jews don't like it and so they drag John and Peter in front of the Jewish council and the Jewish council wants to know by what name, by what power have you done this miracle? And the Bible says that the, the apostle Peter is in that moment filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to just preach the good news that the truth of Jesus Christ despite the consequences that he was about to face. And so he's preaching the, the truth of Jesus Christ, and he says this in the middle of that in Acts 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. A potentially, a bold, but potentially offensive thing to say, Right? 
I mean, surely he doesn't really think that. I mean, how arrogant would you have to be to say that yours is the only way? That How arrogant would any religion have to be to say that theirs is the only way? Surely he doesn't mean this in Acts chapter 4. And this idea that shows up in the Bible multiple times that there is one truth and one way to God and that that one truth and one way to God is Jesus Christ, it, it has implications, doesn't it? If it's true, it has implications, massive implications. It's caused debates, disagreements, even wars. And in a world where we hold acceptance and tolerance above all else, what we've done is we've decided that it can't possibly be true. That these three passages and more that say the same thing, that just, it just can't possibly be fully true, right? It's, we know they're in there. We know they're in the Bible, but it's easier to act like they're not than to live like they are. It's easier to act like they're not than to live like they are. And maybe, maybe, this, is why, maybe this is why you're not a Jesus follower. You're not a Christian. Maybe it's this idea that Jesus is the only way. Just, it's too narrow. It's not fair. It's not loving. I just can't possibly believe that. Maybe that's why you run the other direction. Maybe that's why uh, you don't give Jesus a chance. You're thinking about your atheist friend who's a good person. Your neighbor who doesn't know what they believe. A Muslim friend from college who is the most caring person you've ever met. And you're going, how could they miss it? How could they miss heaven just because they don't know Jesus? That doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It's unloving. It's too narrow. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Maybe you are a Christian. You try to follow the Bible. You want to be like Jesus. You want to teach your kids to be like Jesus. Maybe you're heavily involved in this Church, but when you leave this church and you live your life among tens, maybe hundreds of other people, non believers in Jesus Christ, you live as if John 14 6 isn't in there. You live as if Jesus didn't say he's the only way to the Father. You wouldn't mark out your Bible with a black marker, but the Bible you hold in your heart doesn't have John 14 6. In there, right? Yeah. Because it's easier to it's easier to say something is true than it is to act like it's true, right? To live like it's true. Yeah. So let me spend the rest of my time uh, just talking with you about uh, this from two angles. I'm going to talk to you from a logic angle, and I want to talk to you from a spiritual angle, okay? So logic than spiritual. And listen, if you're a, if you're a skeptic in here, uh, if you just came with somebody or whatever and you're a skeptic, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm a skeptic most of the time. Skepticism is good. A healthy level of skepticism is good. Just don't be a cynic, okay? Be a skeptic but not a cynic. Like a healthy level of skepticism is good. A healthy level of skepticism keeps you from sending your bank account information uh, to those, you know, 32 African princes who emailed you about moving a large sum of money to the United States and they just need a little bit of your help and they'll give you some, right? Like, so that's, that's a healthy level of skepticism. A healthy level of skepticism after the big pitch from a friend asks the question, what's the difference between multi-level marketing and a, and a pyramid scheme? So that, you know, that's a healthy, that, that one stung a little, it's fine. 
That, that's just a healthy level of skepticism. That's a good question. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. That's skepticism. Cynicism is, I've got my blinders on. I'm not going to listen to anybody. I can't possibly be wrong about anything. I don't allow any new information in. And so don't be a cynic. Be a skeptic. Listen to what I have to say. Talk with your, the people who brought you about it. And then decide, decide for yourself. So let's start with logic. If if you want to redact John 14, 6 and other passages like it from the scriptures, or you don't believe those to begin with, then you have to believe that either no one is going to heaven, everyone is, or there are multiple paths to get there, right? That's what you're left with. If Jesus isn't the only way, then you're left with no one's going to heaven, everyone is, or there are multiple paths to get there. Now, data on, um, on world religions varies, but most research agrees that the vast majority of humanity believes in a higher power and in the afterlife, okay? That, so atheists are actually pretty hard to come by. I know they get a lot of airtime, but they're pretty hard. True atheists that don't believe in a higher power at all, they're, they're pretty hard to come by, okay? A lot of people say, I'm an atheist, and then you start talking to them, and you're like, but you're not, okay? So, so it's, not, it's, hard to, it's hard to be a real atheist, okay? And I'll talk to, you know, my, you can email me if you're an atheist, you think you're an atheist, and you want to talk to me, you can email me. My email is jesse at greatoaks.church, so jesse at greatoaks.church. So you can email me anytime, okay? But anyways, um, and so, so atheists are hard to come by, so that really takes care of, of the, the idea that no one is going to heaven because it not, you know, no heaven exists. So now we're left with everyone's going to heaven or there are multiple paths to get there, right? Let me talk about everyone going to heaven for just a second. Almost no one believes that the pedophile, rapist, murderer who doesn't change is going to heaven to enjoy heaven for eternity, Almost nobody can stomach that. Almost nobody really believes that, okay? They might say everybody's going to heaven, but after you talk to them, they're like, well, accept them, <laughs> right? Accept them. So that takes care of everybody going to heaven. So now you're left with multiple paths. Not everybody's going to get in, but there are multiple ways to get to heaven. And so you may say things like, yeah, you know, ours isn't the only way. You may say things like all roads lead to the same place. Uh, you, you may say things like, yeah, you just have to choose a right and good way. You just need to be good within a path, and you need to be sincere, and, and you'll make it to heaven. And so a good and sincere uh, um, Hindu, a good and sincere Buddhist, uh, a good and sincere Muslim, Christian, Mormon, animist in Africa, the, the animist shaman in Africa, they're all going to make it to heaven. And you might say, yeah, they're all different paths, but they're all going to make it to heaven. Now, here's the problem with that, or there's a few. Here's the problem with that. Um, each of these belief systems teaches a different way to get to the preferred afterlife, and almost all of them say that theirs is the only way. So in other words, they all directly contradict, with, directly contradict one another. So every religion has a different road. Every religion has a different road. You want to hear something that I think is even more important? Each religion's road leads to a different place. I mean, it leads to a different place. Like, like Buddhist nirvana, not the band nirvana, okay, but Buddhist nirvana, that, that's like you, you kind of just 
just get into a state of mind where you become one with the universe and you cease to be. That's, that's the end for, for Buddhism. Hinduism teaches that, that you would be re- reincarnated millions upon millions upon millions of times through, you know, the animal kingdom, basically, um, until finally something would change. That, that's, that's not the same as other religions teach. Islamic paradise is not the same as Christian heaven, especially for virgins, because Somebody was, yeah, it's kind of funny. Because the virgins are given to devout Muslim men as property in Islamic paradise. It's not the same as Christian heaven. Animists, most animists in our world would believe that when they die, they become a part of the spiritual world here on earth, the same spiritual world they tried to manipulate their whole lives. Or they st- stick around to haunt and try to help their descendants, Right? Mormons uh, believe that you kind of, through reincarnation, level up over and over and over until you get to God level and you get to have your own world. So this idea that all roads lead to heaven, that there are multiple paths to get there, it just doesn't make any sense. Logically, it just does not make any sense. Just think about it logically. If you believe in a higher power in an afterlife, it just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, maybe you're still going, yeah, but these are good people. These are good. How could a God, you know, you may ask the question, would a loving God let sincere people miss heaven? I mean, would a loving God let sincere people miss heaven? To which I would ask, uh, would a loving God tell one region of the world that this is the right and true and only way, only to whisper to another region of the world that, no, actually, this is the right way, and those people are wrong over there? Would a loving God do that? I think about it logically. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not loving, and it's not, it's not logical. My question would be, how much more loving could God be than to clearly create the way by giving his own life for us. How much more logical, how much more loving, I should say, could God be than to clearly create a way, the way, by sending his son, by giving his own life for us. Think about this in the context of those you love most. Think about it in the context of your kids. Um, I have three kids, uh, ages 10, 5, and 3, I don't play hide-and-seek with my kids' hearts. I don't do that. That's unloving. That would be unloving of me. And so when my kids need me, when they want something from me, when they have something that they need me to be their father in that moment, I don't say, I don't create like a bunch of different complicated paths. I don't, I don't create a maze of a million ways to get to different directions and, and different destinations and say, yeah, it all ends up at me. I don't do that. I, what do I do? I, as a loving father, I create one path to me. I make it very clear. Here's what you need to do if you need me. Or more, more than that, I go to them, right? I go to them when they need me. When my five-year-old Joshua is wrestling with right and wrong, I don't make it confusing for him. I try to make it clear. I say things like, don't hit your sister, <laughs> Right? What I don't say is, hey, Joshua, I saw you hit your sister. You know what? As long as you hug her more times than you hit her and your hugs outweigh the hits, then then you know what? It'll be fine. Karma won't get you. It'll be fine. I don't say, hey, Joshua, I saw you hit your sister. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Is she or is she not an infidel? 
I don't ask, yeah, she's an infidel. Okay, then hit her again. I don't say that. I don't say that. I don't say, Joshua, I saw you hit your sister. Let's talk about it a second. You know what? It doesn't even matter. Because once you're enlightened like me, you'll know that there's no difference between good and evil. That actions are just actions. Your actions aren't evil, neither are they good. Once you're enlightened like me, you'll know that it's just actions and reactions. The world spins, the tide goes out, and it comes back in. Joshua is a fly that lands on your hand. Evil or good for landing on your hand? I think not. (laughs) Neither are your actions good or evil. They just are. I don't say that. I don't say that. I make it very, like, even if you're just a decent parent, you try to make it very clear, right? I say, don't hit your sister. I may say something like, if you hit your sister, this is what you get. And if you don't hit your sister, this is what you get. I may make it like that, but that's pretty much as complex as it gets. And I don't say all that confusing stuff, and neither do you, right? Neither do you. You, try, you love your kids. How unloving would it be to create a million paths to write? How unloving would it be to, to create a million paths to, to, to please you? It would be out of control unloving, and it wouldn't be logical. This whole thing that there are multiple paths to God, to heaven, it really breaks down on a logic side of things. And I could talk to you more about logic and reason, and we could go back and forth, but I don't have time, and neither do you. So let's talk from the spiritual side of things, because I said I would. The words of Jesus, what makes the words of Jesus, the word of God, different than every other religious text on the planet is that it teaches that God did the work, not us. And so while every other religious text, every other religious book is saying, do more, do more, do more. You got to get to this level of enlightenment and then you'll be good. You need to follow these five pillars and then you'll please God. You need to let go of anything material or physical and then you'll be set. You need to get to Mecca once in your lifetime and God will be pleased with you. While every other religion is saying that you doing more, you being more, you working harder is what will get you to heaven, what will get you, uh, you know, please, what would please the, the God you serve, that you just have to be good enough to do it, while every other religion is saying that, the Bible is saying something completely different. And I don't want you to think that it's just religious thought or organized religions that think this, that you got to be good enough and you'll be good to go, because it's common thought, right? It's common thought. Here, here's what I mean. Um, in our society, almost everybody thinks they're a good person, right? I mean, you ask them, you talk with them, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, they don't break a lot of laws. They don't hurt people on purpose. They haven't killed anybody yet, right? And so they're just like, hey, I, I'm a pretty good person. Or they would say, you know, yeah, I'm not as bad as that guy. They play the comparison game, like I'm not the jerk my neighbor is, so I must be doing okay, Right? I'm not as bad as that guy because they think that the the test is between them and Hitler on who gets to heaven. And so they've got, it's not, that's not the test, people. Like, that's not the test. And so, so they, but they have the standard. It may be low, like Hitler, Stalin low, or it may be high, but they go, I'm going to hit this standard and then I'm good to go. The whole thing is they're going to be good enough, right? They're going to be good enough. 
Just about every religion teaches the same thing. You just have to be good enough, and then you'll make it to heaven. You'll please God. You'll make it to the preferred afterlife. The Bible teaches something different. And while these people may think that, you know, different things about different, you know, specific actions, depending on how they were raised and depending on, you know, what they think about right and wrong, it's all the same thing, right? It ends up being the same thing. They're trying, they're putting their hope, all of their chips into living a moral life, into adhering to some kind of a moral code. It's the same thing that all religions teach. You just have to be good enough. So we put our hope for eternity in being good or being good enough. Or just maybe the standard is just not being terrible, right? That's the standard. You get to heaven if you're not terrible. And so someone says, my, my dad died. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. Was he a Christ follower? No, he wasn't a Christian. Never saw him reading his Bible. Never heard him talk about Jesus. He hated church and he cussed like a sailor. But he wasn't a bad guy. I mean, he was a pretty good guy. So I think I'll, I'm going to see him in heaven. I mean, he's a good guy. I'll see him in heaven. We, we put our hope for eternity in good moral living and being good enough. Listen, beloved. The Bible teaches something totally different. The Bible teaches that that you're messed up and you are stuck in sin and there is no way for you to get out and you need somebody to come in from the outside and rescue you. The Bible teaches that there is a standard, but it's God's holiness and none of us can meet the standard. Not even the best among us can meet the standard to enter into heaven. The Bible teaches that true salvation is not earned. It's not given based on, based on what you do, it's not given based on what you do. The Bible teaches that, that you are justified, made good and right before a holy God by one thing, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, the first Good Friday and the first Resurrection Sunday, that Jesus is the only way. That's what the Bible teaches, that you need to be rescued. And if this idea is new to you or it's old but you, you rejected it a long time ago, you may be thinking like, man, that is narrow, that is harsh. How could you say that? But listen, it's actually good news. It's actually really, really good news because if you would just be honest this morning, you'd have to admit that you guys have some issues, right? I mean, I've seen them. I mean, you guys got some, you are messed up. Turn to the na your neighbor and say, you're messed up. You are messed up. I mean, if you would just drop the pretending, let's just stop pretending. Just drop the pretending and the mask for just a beat. You would have to admit that you've got some problems, that you are messed up, that, that you've got a sinful nature that has been following you around your whole life, and you're pushing it down, pushing it down, and it keeps rearing its ugly head. I mean, you have to be able to admit that if you just be honest about it. Listen, you're not going to be able to fix it. 
Your lust, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your anger problem, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your insecurity, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your bitterness, your anger, all the stuff, the hate in your heart, the self-centeredness in your heart, you're not going to be able to fix it. These deviances that have been following you around and following you around and following you around, you're not going to be able to fix them. I mean, how long have you been in this thing? How long have you been fighting this battle? Five years? 15, 30, how's it going? It's still hard, right? You still can't beat it. You're not going to be able to fix this stuff because you don't have the power of life and death. You can't resurrect anything. You can't fix anything. Christ can. Christ is the one who can fix this stuff. You want to talk about last words? Jesus hanging on the cross, dying an excruciating death for you and for me between raspy breaths and cries of pain. At the very end, he says, it is finished. He didn't say, I hope you're going to be good enough. He's not hanging on the cross going, be good. No, it is finished. So it's been said that while every other religion in the world teaches do, Jesus says done. He paid the price. He met the standard. He's the only way into heaven. You can't do it without Jesus. You want to talk about the love of a father? He made it abundantly clear like you try to with your kids. He made it abundantly clear one way. He gave his life for you that there would, so that there would be no confusion. He didn't create a complicated maze going in 37 different directions. He didn't do that. He made one way to you through his son, Jesus Christ. You want to talk about the love of a father? So it's by his great love for you. It's because of his great love for you that he set it up this way. It's because of his great love for you that Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's by his great love for you that he has done this. And so you have to decide if this is true or not. You have to decide that. But, but if it is true, if it is true that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, if it is true, then there's really only one response, right? You run to him. You run to him. You go to him. You ask him for forgiveness. You ask him to rescue you out of all the junk that your, your life is in. You ask him for help. You give your life over to him, and you live each day for the rest of your days for his honor and glory and by telling everybody else about him. I mean, you have to decide if this is true. You have to decide if John 14, 6 should be redacted or unredacted from the Bible you live live by in your heart, but if it is true, then there's only one response. You run to him. You run to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness.
Thank you for your word that is so clear that you made the way for us to get to the Father, to enjoy your presence. God, I pray for those in this room who are confused, those in this room who are so deceived. They're listening to the lies of the world, their own lies, the lies of the enemy, and they're so confused. I pray supernaturally in this moment that you would pierce the confusion and the fog, that in this moment, God, that your truth would reign supreme in their hearts and minds, that there would be no more questions or doubts or obstacles, but that today they would accept the gift that you've given us by your great love, the one way to you through Jesus Christ, dying and rising again on the third day. I pray that many hearts, many in this room, who came in in darkness, who came in dead, would, like you were that first Resurrection Sunday, be resurrected to life. As we continue in an attitude of prayer, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, listen, it's Easter Sunday. I've tried my best, knowing that we would have guests in here, I've tried my best to preach a direct message about the truth of the gospel, to give you a chance to make a decision for Jesus today that would alter your eternal destiny. That was, that's my heart, that was my goal. So I've done the best I can. Now, now what's left is for the Holy Spirit to do. But if you're in here, and, and, and maybe the truth of John 14, 6 has been re- redacted from your heart, maybe you've never believed it, maybe you're, you're going, yeah, I've never given my life over to Jesus, I've never done the Jesus thing, I've just kind of showed up here because a friend invited me here because this is what we do on Easter, my mom makes me come, whatever it is, you're here. And you're going, yeah, I I believe. I want to give my life over to Jesus once and for all. He's the way, the truth, and the life. I want to run to him. I want to be transformed by him. If that's you, or maybe you once, you know, a long time ago when you were a kid or, or, or 10 years ago or five years ago or whatever, you were following Jesus, but, but you've kind of wandered and strayed away. And today you're going, you know what? I, I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus Christ. I, I want him to be the way, the truth, and the life for me, not just for everyone. I want him not only to enter human history and change that, but I'm asking that Jesus would enter my history and he would change that, that he would enter my life. So if that's you, today today is the best day, now is the best time to give your life over to Jesus completely and ask him to transform you because he's the one who does that. He's the one who does that. And so you do that by just saying a prayer, just, just asking him. You don't have to know King James English to pray to God. Just pray. Just go, God, I need you. I want you to transform me. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm stuck in my sin. I can't get out. I need you. I accept the truth. I, I accept the truth and the implications of it that you are the only way to the Father. I want you, Jesus. I want to give my life to you, Jesus. I want to be transformed by you, Jesus. Just in your own words, just say that. And if you're in this room and you would, you would say, that's me. I want to give my life to Jesus today on Easter Sunday, 2019 at Great Oaks Community Church. I want to give my life over to Jesus today. If that's you, I'm going to recommit or or maybe you've never given your life to Jesus for real. 
with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I would love to pray for you. And so if that's you, would you just slip your hand up so I can pray for you? Just slip your hand up right now if you want to give your life over to Jesus. Yeah, I see that hand in the back. Keep it up. Keep it up. Anyone else? Yep, I see that hand. Just keep your hands up for just a moment. Let me pray over you. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray, God, that you would protect the seed that's been planted in hearts. Maybe it takes some time to take root and to really means something. Maybe there's some questions we're asking. I pray for those who are bold enough to raise their hand and go, you know what? I want to give my life to Jesus right now. I pray that it sticks. I pray that this is the day of their salvation, that they would leave here different than they came in, God, that you would do a saving work in their lives. I pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Why don't you stand with me? Listen, we've got prayer workers at the side that would love to pray for you. I know we're running out of time. We're going to sing one last song, uh, but when I step off the stage, you guys can feel free to go grab your kids to to get moving that direction, or you can stay. Uh, We've got prayer workers at the side. If you raised your hand to give your life to Jesus, or you didn't, but you want to, or you want to find more information about that, the prayer workers have a packet called the I've Decided Packet. They would love to give that to you about next steps. It's got a book in it that would help you. And so if that's you, just on the way out, just stop by the prayer workers on the side that got land yours and they'll give you one of those. Here's my prayer for us today. May the Bible you have in your heart match the one you have in your hands. May you live like Jesus really is, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through him. And may your hope be found not in what you can do, but in what Jesus has already done. As always, my encouragement to you is to talk with your life group about this. We do church and life groups here at Great Oaks. If you're not in a life group, stop at Connection Central. We'll get you plugged in. And my challenge to you is that you don't let this stop with you, that you be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. Happy Easter. We'll see you next week for week two in Redacted.